Bordy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Lisa Francesca Nand, and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. We are proudly sponsored by WeCure, the leading health tourism provider in the UK. They connect patients seeking dental treatments, aesthetic procedures, and social and mental well-being with internationally accredited medical institutions in Turkey. So if you need a treatment, you might as well turn it into a relaxing holiday. And we have an exclusive offer for you, as if you book via this link I'm about to give you, they will pay for a friend, a family member, a lover whoever to come along with you so visit weekyour.co.uk slash big travel podcast to find out more that's weekyour.co.uk slash big travel podcast now on to today's episode Lem Sisse, one of the UK's most brilliant poets, was taken from his Ethiopian mother against her will at birth and after a stinging rejection from foster parents aged 12, spent his childhood in care. He published his first book of poetry aged 17 and sold it to striking miners in Lancashire. Poetry, he says, gave him wings and he began his travels not just around the world but also the physical and metaphorical journey to find his birth family was part of him always feeling like that rootless kid, he says. I'm seriously delighted to have Lim Sisse on the Big Travel Podcast. It is a story of travel. It's a story of immigration and, you know, a, a story that will be familiar to, to a lot of people. But I think that's a, that might be a very good place to start. You know, travel was not part of your agenda as a child growing up in foster homes and care homes. So let's, most people will know your story, I'm sure, but let's start very, very early on with, in 1966 with, with your birth, I think. Absolutely. Um, well, my birth was 1967, but, but 1966 is when my mother flew from uh, Ethiopia first to Greece, because there was not a direct uh, flight from Ethiopia to London, first to Greece to Athens, then changed at Athens, Athens to London. Uh, And my father was a pilot for Ethiopian Airlines. Uh, So you could say that travel really is in in my blood. Um, I was conceived uh, in Greece. So I was conceived on the stopover. Nobody wants to know where and when they were conceived, but I had to find out, and there's, there's a story to that. But my mum was coming to study, um, uh, just like any kind of uh, forward-thinking culture. Travel is a part of how you learn skills, and then you bring them back to wherever it is you, know, you, you came from. And that was, my mother was uh, coming to England to study, and then to return to Ethiopia, 
which was in its heyday uh, at that time um, for certain people, you could say. Um, the Emperor Haile Selassie was uh, heading Ethiopia. They set up the Organization of Africa Unity, which is like the United Nations for uh, African continents. Um, Ethiopia was never colonized. It was occupied by the Italians for a few years, but not colonized. So it's, it's, a, it's a symbol of uh, a kind of new Africa, really, because a lot of African countries at the time were, were sort of decolonizing. I've interviewed three people from Ethiopia recently, but yes. very prominent people, and went to, flew to Addis Ababa to, to record this with Ethiopian Airlines. All three people had a connection to Ethiopian Airlines, which I'm getting the impression is very significant in the country. You know, it was a very part of, um, of the, the, the growing middle class, you know, we're, we're associated yes. with the airline. But I also got to know something about the magic and the history of Ethiopia. And it's not something I was aware of before. On the world stage, we mainly know Ethiopia um, due to the famine, which is now, of course, many, many years ago. And also what I didn't realize at the time, it was more of a, a political famine because Ethiopia is a beautifully green, lush, magical, magical country. And I think we'll talk about Ethiopia when you actually go to Ethiopia for the first time, because of course you know none of this when you're a young child, you are sent into the care system. And by all accounts, it was pretty damn tough. Yeah, it was, um, uh, it was tough. I do think that the first journey, the first migration a person makes is from the womb into the open air. You know, we're, we are constantly traveling from one environment to another. My mum was put into a mother and baby home and the social worker effectively stole me from her and gave me to foster parents and said to them, treat this child as your own. He will get her to sign the adoption papers. And uh, so I was brought up with the Greenwood family in Lancashire. And the only travelling we did was around the northwest of England to see my grandmas and granddads and to Scotland, uh, to Loch Inver, to the Highlands most beautiful, beautiful, brutal landscape. Um, uh, I, 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 I did love it. And then at 12 years of age, the foster parents, who'd said that they would be my mum and dad forever, um, put me into children's homes and never spoke to me again. I lost everybody. Um, my aunts and my uncles, my grandparents, the whole... Uh, the whole fam family. And, um, and then I was held in a series of children's homes uh, for the next six years and then released at 17 and a half. Um, well, why did they, because by all accounts early on, they were, they were good foster parents, were they? I mean, what was life like with them? And why, did you think, why do you think they, they did that, something so horrific? That's exactly the question I asked myself for all of the rest of my childhood um, and, um, and a whole lot of my adulthood. Um, I think it was connected to my mother's, my foster mother's um, postnatal depression, to the fact they had a child, uh, an extra child that they weren't expecting. Um, so they had three children plus me and I think that I was the full guy for the family. It's, it's not even... Complicated. What complicated it is that, that they couldn't admit that to themselves. 
Um, so they had to sort of blame me. Um, and again, um, <laughs> I, I had no, no idea what I had done to lose everybody that I'd ever known in my life. Um, and I still don't, you know. What does a child have to do to lose, for their parent to say, you are no longer part of this? Did you blame yourself for a while? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was, well, it had to have been me. I mean, it had to have been me. I didn't know what it was about me that it had to have been. But the entire idea for them was that I would feel some sense of guilt and that I would understand that it was my fault. So I spent a lot of time thinking, what did I do to make this happen? And um, I stole biscuits from the tin without saying please and thank you. I stayed out late with my friends. I um, I uh, had cigarettes. Um, I did everything that normal a normal young adolescent would do. I was twelve years of age. As an adult, you know now that that was not in any way your fault. Yeah, but I, I must admit to having spent like a lot of my formative years believing that 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 that, that must it must have been somehow me. You know. Um. But then I left care and, you know, uh, tried to manage my way through my life. And, um, yeah, that's me. What was the care system like? Oh, the care system sort of was very, um, was very biased against children in care, weirdly. <laughs> we would be punished for doing anything wrong, but we wouldn't be congratulated for doing anything well. And um, it was very punishment-orientated. Um, you know, most of the kids who steal from shops or uh, most of the children who um, drink underage or young people who, uh, who uh, run run away as well they're, they're not kids in care they're your kids you know when your child does something like smokes a mar- you know some something illegal or drinks underage or something you come together with your partner or with yourself to discuss how we're going to get through this you know well, if a child in care does it the police are called see so the idea that children in care are naughty is to pretend that children are not naughty. You know, so there's like an unchallenged bias against a child that's out there in society. Um, so to be an already traumatised child in a care system surrounded by people who actually think that you're intrinsically bad, it, it's uh, quite a shocking place to be. They don't love you as well, and I think that that's the, that's the main thing with parents, is that your kids can do horrific things, but because oh you love them, yeah. you will more readily forgive them. Absolutely. I mean, your child could be a murderer, and you would be the one that would visit it in a prison, visit your child in a prison, you know. Um, love and the actions of love are all possible uh, within the environment. By the way, I don't want to like be down on, on, on the care system or on people who've been in care because I'm one of them, you know, and life is beautiful. And, 
you know, I've set things right. Um, I've proved what I'm telling you now is true. I've taken the government to court. You know, I've received apologies for what happened, for having my mother stolen from me, for being incarcerated, imprisoned as a child illegally. Um, I've written books and plays and, and, and I've just received my files and, you know, and I know so many incredible people who were brought up in the care system. You know, I know uh, chief executives, uh, musicians, um, heads of city councils. Uh, and, you know, my favourite person is a plumber from Lee. You know, he was brought up in care. He's got a wife and children and he, he, he works and he's bought his home with them. And I look at his life and I think... You are the most successful person that I know because I know what you went through as a child, you know. So I don't want to, people to feel that, 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 that this system of care, which is dysfunctional in so many ways, gives way to a, uh, a set of damaged, violent people because it's not true. 97% of people in the care system have nothing to do with the... Um, judicial system after they've left they get on they live their life they try to provide a life for their children that they didn't have and that hurts them because they're reminded as their child grows of everything they didn't have and yet they provide it you know that that's the story of a hero or a heroine and not only that as they grow they try to not talk about their own past because it's so toxic that they don't want to pass it on to their own children. You know, and, 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 and there, is, there is good in that and there's bad in that, actually. But it's, it's, there are so many unspoken heroes who were brought up in the care system who've gone out to make uh, the world a better place even if that is by having one child or holding down one relationship that they never thought they deserved. And you turn to poetry, which isn't automatically what you imagine children any, of any age, uh, huh. any, any background um, turn to. But you, what, was, what sparked? The, the, was it just the, did you just have it in you and have the urge to write? I wish I could bottle it and say it was this. So if you just give it to somebody, they'll become, you know, they'll be able to be that as well. I just, I don't uh, know where it came from. Um, why is one person a great cook and another one not? You know, why can one person suddenly understand numbers and think, oh, I, I want to go into mathematics. I don't know, there's something about numbers that I love. Uh, you could say it's a book that you gave to your child and your child, you say, I remember when you, you, but there's something deeper. There's something further. It's like when the child is born, do you see in them something? Would you, do you look and think, oh, there's a spark or there's a this or there's an introvert, or there's an extrovert, there's a sort of creative, outwardly creative person, there's a thinker, there's a joker. You know, I just don't know where it came from. And I'm happy, you know, I've been trying to answer this question. And I want to say, well, maybe it's because my foster father was an English teacher. Maybe, and it's not. It was sort of in me from the moment I was born and, and it, 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 it became visible. I think every parent must 
want their child's talents to become visible in their own time. You know what I mean? So even though I didn't have parents, um, I, 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 I always knew I would become what I was. I knew I would become a poet at 12 years of age. And by 17, you were selling poetry to striking minors. I mean, where, what does, how does that even happen? <laughs> what was the North of England like to a 17-year-old who decided to sell poetry to stri- striking minors at that point? Well, I was brought up in Lancashire and in the North. You know, I was always other. You know, I was the only sort of person of colour in a village. You know, I was... You know, and, and I wrote poetry, and and I, I yeah, you're right. I did. I, I sold it to the striking miners in 1984 and 85 of Lancashire, and they they um, they bought it. You know, they bought my poems, and I, I paid for that book. Actually, my first book when I was 18, I paid for it myself to the printer who let me pay him every week. And um, you know, this this is really connected to this podcast because. It's because of poetry that when I left the children's homes, I had books published then by a proper publisher at 21. But even before that, it's poetry that put me on planes. It's poetry that I travelled. I never, as a child in the children's homes, I never went abroad. They never took us outside of the country. I didn't go abroad with my foster parents. Actually, I'm just realising this now that... Yeah, that my first, yeah, my, my first flight was, uh, I think it was to Germany, and it was to perform, and it would have been in 1989, yeah. <laughs> and every time, like, for the, every time I sat on a plane, I would say to myself, consciously, poetry put me here. Like, poetry, that thing that I was doing in the villages years earlier, has put me on this flight. How was you know, it going so, to Germany at that oh, point? Oh, it was great. Oh, my days, it was great. I thought that breakfast was cereal and milk and toast and then a fry-up, you know, which is what we do here in England, right? Like in the north of England especially, a fry-up at the weekends. And this, there was this breakfast food which was meat and cheese and tomatoes and uh, even gherkins and it was spread out and I, I just loved it I loved it that this was breakfast in, in, in mainland Europe actually in a lot of mainland Europe breakfast is like that it's us here that are actually quite different um, <laughs> and um, and cake. Oh my days! I, I'm from the northwest of England. We think we know cakes, you know, Victoria's sponge. We do not know cakes. German cakes are next level. You know, the the layer. Of, this is. <laughs> 
It's because I pulled a face, and that's why, because we're looking at yeah, each other on yes. Zoom, and I, I pulled a face when you said that, because I am like, I will fight the corner for British cakes until I die, you know, and I'm from the Northeast as well. Yes. No, I'm not. I'm from the Northwest. Where am I? Northwest. I don't, I don't know. From I'm from the Northwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So even though I'm a travel writer, he doesn't know where I'm from. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I will fight the corner for British cakes, Victoria Sponge. You're, you're from the land of parking, aren't you? I mean, come look, on. Look, no, no, no. I love our cake Okay, yes. of the Northwest. I love archaeology. Um, and we have to remember this would have been 1989, and I think, yeah, we've, there's been a resurgence of interest in the cake, uh, and in the British cake in particular. But these were, these, it was the difference between saying, I don't know, that we have carpenters in England who, oh, no, 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 I don't, no. The cakes of Germany were like miniature palaces. They had like, hard bits in the middle, like a, 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 you know, a thing of chocolate, a thin film of chocolate, a thin breakable bit of chocolate in the middle, and then more and more and more and more. And, uh, <laughs> sorry, I just remember being very excited by the cake. No, I, I totally, I do get excited by cake. And actually, this is not something I've ever thought of now, so I'm formulating my thoughts as we go. But if you think about the German cake looking a bit like a palace, you said, but I'm thinking of German castles. You know, the fairy tale castles. Yeah. Oh my gosh! There the was country. that as well. There yeah. was like, a, what was that place? Um, Hanover. Like Hanover was like a Christmas card as well. You know, with the houses. Um, and then, and then, uh, yeah, I, I, I regret not learning a language. I've got to say that up front. Because I think that I initially thought that that I was the most important thing in the world that I was going to, because I was going to perform and I was going to, you know, uh, I was going to get on stage and this was all new and I, I loved the, that everything, the cars driving on the wrong way of the road, the, the other side of the road. Um, I, I, and this was before the wall came down as well. Um, yeah, and that, that was the beginning of my hotel, train, plane, car, taxi uh, life of travel because it didn't stop then. That, that, it began there and it went all over the world and continues to, you know, this lockdown that we're in at present means that I've... I've uh, you know, I've not gone to Dubai, I've not gone to Ethiopia to film, India, America, uh, and a couple of other places. Australia, I should have been there to, uh, promoting my book. It must have been so, very strange because you've gone from, you know, you've gone from children's homes to pretty much instant success on the poetry scene and international travel. It's almost like there was no in-between. Uh, very much so. I was very find about what I wanted to be uh, and it happened. I wanted to find my family, my mother, my birth mother, and I wanted to be the poet that I always knew I was. And, um, and it's funny, this travel this, uh, that I've been performing has paid for my uh, other journey, my internal journey and physical journey to find my family. It's, 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 um, 
Yeah, it really has. Tell um, us about finding your family because you did find your mother at age 21, was it? I did, yeah. Yeah, and I, the resources that I used, strangely when I left care also, I, I got a job as a literature development worker in Manchester at, at 19 years of age, you know. Um, uh, but I, I, yeah, I used any money that I got really from poetry and from that, that post to... To, 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 to put into the search for my mum. And I found her within three years of leaving the children's homes. She works for the United Nations. She's stationed in, she was stationed in the Gambia. She had to flee Ethiopia in 1974 um, due to the emperors being overthrown and the revolution that happened there. Um, and yeah, and, so, and I, I flew for the first time to Africa at 21, the first time to the continent which I'd been stolen from. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah, and I went to Senegal, Senegal first. I booked the flight. Remember, I'm still in Lancashire, right? I'm uh, based in Manchester now, but I'd never booked a flight before myself. People normally book flights for me, they still do to this day. And I sent the money to a travel agent in Brixton in cash, in an envelope. That's how much I didn't know, okay? Also, I had no family, so I had nobody to tell me not to do that. That's the whole story. But, so I put the money in cash in an envelope and I sent it to, oh, it begins with T, it was a, a travel agent in Brixton, to book me this flight. And they said, they sent me a letter, letter back to say, we received your money. Don't send cash again like that ever in the post. <laughs> and so I, I, uh, I traveled to Senegal um, and I, I had to stay there for a night. And um, yeah, and that's where I met a, an airport guy who worked at the airport who he, he invited me to his family to go and eat. And, and I did. And then he found me a hotel close by. It was a terrible hotel. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't even a hotel. It was probably somebody's house with a bedroom in it. I think that's what it was. But it was just what I needed. What it's was really it like going to, to eat with his family? Because Oh, I my gosh. <laughs> I had jollof rice for the first time and fish. And it was beautiful. And... You know, the beautiful introduction to Africa was uh, this guy and his family, and he was into Chris Rea, <laughs> Lady in Red, you know. And that's the great thing about traveling, though, isn't it? It's, 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 you know, lose your, put down your stereotypes and put down your preconceptions and listen and watch and, and find and discover you know, one of the most enjoyable things I find is not understanding other people's languages. Because to communicate, I have to look at the face and the eyes and the context and the, um, you know, uh, and the hands. And you switch on a skill that lazily we don't really use that much, you know. Uh, and you have to drop your fear 
because fear makes you feel that everybody's saying bad things about you. They don't care, blah, 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 blah. Switch on your humor face. Enjoy not knowing. You know, I love bartering. Okay. And I love bartering because it's a game. And especially if you're not from round an area, always go disgustingly low. Okay. Just go to a point where the person who's looking at you is thinking, are you really, are you really suggesting that? Go like, go with, you know, go offensively low, you know, cause it's not offensive. It's, it's, uh, I can't go. I, don't, I go. I think I've, it's been a long, a long time since I've bartered. I feel bad about it because, you know, you do it in India or something and you realise that you're actually arguing over 5p or something, you know, when you translate it. Um, but I think I go, what, I go half and then sort of meet three quarters. So I'm, I'm obviously going wrong here. Go I? way lower than half because it's fun, you know, and I'm not talking about for fruit or food or I'm not talking about bartering for that I, 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 I you know that's not what I mean I mean if you're gonna buy a rug or if God, they saw you coming and you know people in the markets are the same anywhere in the world you know except for places that you go where like there is no such thing as bartering and like if you barter there <laughs> <laughs> you get taken away somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I love it that you go, that you embrace, like, you know, you, you do get picked up from the airport and someone does take you to their house. That happened to me the first time I went to Fiji. And yeah. similar, similar to you, I was going to Fiji to meet my family for the first yeah. time, my dad's family. And, you know, they you're take vulnerable. you back to the house. They, you're vulnerable. It's exciting. And it's also, yeah. for me, excruciatingly awkward you know because oh. you're in someone's house and you don't speak the language and they're giving you food and it's it's lovely and it's those experiences that you look back on and this, this is probably what I love so much about travel is you put yourselves in these vulnerable embarrassing awkward situations and afterwards they make the best stories um, but at yes. the time you're sitting there thinking I'm so embarrassed I don't know what Actually, to say <laughs> I, and also I don't know what's going to happen I don't know the rules I don't know, should I be talking to this person to my left? You know, the first time I ate Ethiopian food with a group, because we, it, at times, not all the time, but you can eat together, you know, I did, I, I was putting my hand over to get the food on the other side of the circle. I hadn't realized that every person has their own station of food. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Ethiopian food is just, it's just the best. Honestly, I fell in love with Addis Ababa. I'd love, I'd love to go back there and explore more. And the food is just, is stunning, really stunning. But so you went to Senegal and where you still haven't met your mum oh, yet. So yeah, yeah, yeah what yeah, happened? Yeah. I went to Senegal and then when we got the flight over from Senegal to the Gambia the next day, when I got the flight over alone, I, I, was, I was speaking to the person who sat next to me as a, Muslim guy, very large, sort of deep voice, kind face. And he said, um, oh, those people at the back of the plane, they work with your mum. So this is the first introduction to my family. Now, my, mom have, uh, my, my mother and my father's family are very international. They went to international schools in Paris and Belgium. And half my father's family studied, well, all of them studied in New York and uh, in Washington, D.C., at Harvard and Berkeley, et cetera, et cetera. I had no idea about all of this. But there, it, this does fit with travel because... So then I went to the back of the plane and I said to these people, oh, my mum's in... Uh, does my mum work with you? And they were like, yeah, she works at the United, UNDP offices. And uh, she's from Ethiopia, but like I say, she, she was stationed in the Gambia. 
And so there was a black Mercedes waiting for them at the little airport in Banjul. Was it Banjul? And um, on the on the tarmac, and they uh, they put me in the car, and then they just drove into the Gambian dusk, with golden wings of dust flying from the side each side of this black panther, you know, pelting through the through the night. And one by one, the, the UN officers were dropped off, and they had a word with the driver, because who was I, really, you know, to check first? And he took me to Fajara. Fajara was the part of the Gambia where the diplomats lived and the embassy people and what have you, it's by the coast. Very different now, by the way. You know, a lot has happened in the Gambia regarding tourism and little bits of trouble here and there. It's, uh, and and yeah, and the, the the Mercedes parked outside of these tall manicured hedges, which hid the pathway that then led up to the house. And I heard her coming uh, and opening the gate after speaking to the uh, driver, and that's where I hugged her. Um, that's where I hugged her, and then. And then she took me into the house, and that's where I stayed for a week and a half. What was it like meeting your mum? Um, it was okay. It was actually quite awkward, I think, for her and for me. And so we've got a lot of navigating to do in our relationship. And it's amazing, isn't it, how, how much travel works its way into our language and our journeys Journeys. We talk of journeys, don't we, in life. Uh, we navigate through problems, as I was just saying with my mum, you know. Um, um, we find pathways. You know, um, we take flight. Um, yes, yeah, so, so, it's, it's, so I'm still navigating my way with my mum. 30 years after that moment. And I think that means that I've probably got a relationship like most people have got in their own families. We're all trying to get our parents to see us for who we think we are. And we're all trying to find conversations with our family members and finding that we can't speak fully with one, but we will learn to, or we will learn to accept that we won't be able to speak in the way we want to with one family member, you know. And we, we sort of solidify at times. And I think I've been, you know, able to accept that maybe the people I met in my family, they're hurt in different ways. The revolution happened in Ethiopia. They all had to fly around the world. By the way, many of them worked for Ethiopian airlines. Um, so the airline has actually been part of the story inside my DNA. Even the airline as a symbol of Ethiopia, which it was in the 1960s, being the 1960s being um, and early 70s being the catch me if you can generation. It's, be it's best shown in the film Catch, catch Me If You Can yeah. by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. That walk 
of the pilot and the air hostesses, as they were called then, uh, walking beside him through the airport is everything about what airlines were in the world. It was a village, the airline world. The, the training from TWA in America to Ethiopian Airlines meant that Ethiopian Airlines was known amongst pilots around the world as being a top standard, top flight. Talk about that, don't we? We said, oh, it's top flight. A top flight um, airline known to the industry. It's not a village anymore, but it was then. Um, the, the lady I went to interview in, um, in Addis Ababa, Leah Kabide, a top model. Yeah, I know Leah. Yeah. Wonder, wonderful lady. And her father worked for Ethiopian Airlines, yeah. and, and as did the father of Maza Mengiste. A, um, yeah, Maza, yeah. Yeah, she's amazing. I went to New York to interview her and Marcus Samuelson, all these Ethiopians in the diaspora, as they call it, you know, out and about doing their own thing. But the interesting thing about Leah is she said growing up in, in Addis Ababa, Ababa, they were very middle class, you know, a bit like your family sounding. And people think, people assume that your mum came to, and gave birth in England. They assume that like they're living in huts or poverty. You know, I, I have that a bit with yeah. my family. And yeah, people. yeah. And Leah also said that she didn't realise she was black until she left Ethiopia and went to live in Paris because she was just a person, you know, in Ethiopia. And then suddenly she was you know, othered as soon as she went to live in a European country. But it made me, it reminded me of the time I went to meet my family. I grew up in, in the north of England and in Spain as well with a white English mum and a dad who's an Indian Fijian. And my dad is the only brown person I've ever met that I was related to. And obviously it's me and my brother. The very first time I went to Fiji, the very first time I met another brown person in my family, you know, I was looking at his face. It was my cousin mm. Ben. And I was actually waiting in the hotel lobby for him to come in. And every single person that came to the door, I smiled like, cause you know, this could be my uncle. I have no idea what he looks like. Actually, he's, he's, Ben is my cousin. Um, but then like to look at his face and to see like my dad's in the, all these people when there had only been my dad, whether for you, there had only been you. So what was that like looking at your mother's face? It just must've been, Astounding. Yeah, and, and like you, I met my brothers and sisters, or, or I, sorry, I met my cousins, but uh, but I had a similar experience as the one you've just explained when seeing my brothers and sisters and the sons and daughters of my, of my mother. And um, I, it was uh, it's a it's a strange, a very unique experience that that you you've just uh, outlined, and very um, beautiful as well because you can you can you. You know, people are always saying to me, like, uh, you know, you're black or you're this or you're that. And it's fine. You know, so, uh, yeah, I, so I'll, I will, you know, tell myself I am black. I'm also a human being. I'm also a collection of molecules. I'm also an artist. I'm also a northern, northern lad. I'm also a Londoner because I live in London. I'm also a citizen of England. I am a citizen. I am a born from Ethiopia, son of Ethiopia. I'm all of those things. You know what I mean? And I might, I might deny one one day and think, oh, I'll have the other one today. You know, I, you know, we're so tied to other people's definitions. And actually, we don't have to be. You know, our choice is to define ourselves as people of the world, man. Um, you know, I said earlier on that, you know, if you, the first, first migration is from the womb into the open air, you know. 
and we're constantly migrating. And nobody wants a child to just go to university and then come back home and stay behind the curtains and look through the windows. You know, parents will watch their children grow wings and fly. So, you know, in that, in that situation of constant travel, really, to see somebody who looks like you is like catching a leaf in a storm, you know, and going, wow, look at that. This is, this, you know, you're part of this world that I'm part of and you look like me or you look like somebody I know, you know. Um, there is a joy in that. I've got to say that I've come to this recently. I think when you travel, you do come to things. It doesn't make you better, but I noticed that people only call themselves by a colour when they're in the minority. So when a, quote, white person goes to Africa, they're like, oh, yeah, or to the continent of Africa, they go, oh, yeah, I'm a white guy. I understand, I'm a white guy. But when they're in England, where they're the majority, they're like, why are you defining me by my colour? Why are you saying white guy? It feels weird. When, oh, sorry, I've got upstairs stuff going on. When you go to Africa, if you call somebody black, they're like, whoa. You know, it feels reductive. So I just find that a fascinating thing. So tell me, oh gosh, the drilling. Tell me a little bit about your dad. Well, my dad. Do you do Salamta? The magazine, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's me. I interviewed, okay. uh, interviewed Marcus Samuelson, Mazza and Leah for it. But at, at the moment, it's all paused. Okay. I'll tell you, I'll tell you. You're the, you were the next person. I told later. you when I contacted you on Facebook. You were the next person on our list to be interviewed. And it's an, Salamta is an, the Ethiopian Airlines magazine, for anyone who doesn't know, because why would you know unless you fly on it regularly? And uh, it's a lovely magazine. And that's where I was flying to Ethiopia and New York to interview these people for the magazine. I interviewed them and wrote it up for the magazine. And also we did a podcast with it, um, which I think is a great idea because airline magazines are going to be a thing of the past. You know, all those pages that people are touching on airlines. However, airline podcasts where people can listen, I mean, let's do more of those. And, and obviously, you know, give me more work, you know. But yeah, you were going to be the next person on my list. You were. I was say, that is a great idea, the podcast idea. And I'll just tell you why. So I'm not just um, blowing smoke here. But Ethiopian Airlines has followed my journey uh, back to Ethiopia. So I may have found my mum when I was 21, but I only first went to Ethiopia when I was 29, when I found out who my father was. And I made a BBC documentary about him. I have an incredible photograph of my father at the top of uh, air stairs. Uh, you know, the stairs that go to the, the aeroplane, of course you know, but I'm just saying for the listener, the air stairs. Well, do you know what? I've never and heard the term air stairs before, even as a travel professional, but I, I, could, I could connect the dots and it, it might imagine right. that air stairs were the, air, the stairs going Thank up you. to the aeroplane. And at the top, uh, there's no aeroplane. There's just my dad and one of the emperor's lions. It is the most incredible photograph. A lion, an actual a, lion. A lion. If you... Google now if you can get if you've got your Google if you put Lem if you put Lem say father lion, lion. <laughs> randomly let's let's do this live yeah let's, let's do, do this it. live okay, now I mean I, I could do it and 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 um, say father and lion, lion. That's, that's the first thing that comes up you know you yeah, can see a predicted yeah, yeah. yeah oh my goodness 
oh, I'm going to steal that from my Instagram when we, uh, yeah, you do when that. we plug yeah, this. Yeah. Wow. Isn't what's... that an incredible picture? That's one of the Emperor's lines. If you look further down, you'll see a picture of my father with one of the, um, uh, with uh, an Ethiopian Airlines t- uh, plane. Uh, on, and all my family are there, all working for Ethiopian Airlines. Oh, and there's an incredible the picture. picture, actually. I've just seen of you and your foster parents and... Yes, yeah, yes. The, the little blonde you, kids and you. It's yeah. interesting. If you see, you can also see, there's also a, a picture there of my father on the 25th anniversary of Ethiopian Airlines with a 25th anniversary cake with the American uh, pilot who trained, uh, who trained a lot of the pilots in Ethiopia uh, at Ethiopian Airlines. What was that? The, the yeah. lion, you know, <laughs> why? <laughs> Do you know? Well, my father, my father co-piloted the emperor. Um, and uh, so it could have been connected to do with that. Um, but I, I actually don't know the story, actually, to be honest. Uh, I don't know the story. I just know. And there's another picture you'll see of my father in all of the, his Ethiopian Airlines, I think it's an official photograph. And on his finger is the exact same ring that Bob Marley has got on his finger. But you never so, got to meet you him. Know. You never got to meet your father because he I died in a plane crash. I never got to meet crash. my father. Tell me what happened to him. I know you said he died in a plane crash. What, what do you know about that? Well, I made a BBC uh, television documentary in 1995, which was also the first time that I'd flown to Ethiopia on Ethiopian. Um, and... Uh, yeah, my father passed away in a uh, in a storm on New Year's Day, travelling from Ethiopia to Eritrea, from Addis to Asmara, uh, in the Simeon Mountains. And I've I took a film crew to to the place where the crash happened. And I took my sister, my new sister, and we found pieces of plane sort of still uh, 29 years, no, longer. That's 1974 to 1995, 50 years later. The side of the mountain has trees that have grown, that have pushed around the fuselage. You know, you, on one level, you look at the side of the mountain and you, this field and you, it looks green, grey, and, and then and as you look closer, you realise it's, it's metal, pieces of metal all over that have been sort of smothered by the overgrowth, but that are still there. And as we went into the village of a very rural area, we saw that um, some of the doors of the um, very basic huts, homes, were from the plane, metal from the plane. Bowls that were used were metal from the plane, you know. How did it so, feel um, seeing the, the place where your father lost his life? How, how did that feel? I said in the film that that's, it's like having found his place of rest was like beginning the rest of my life, you know. So it felt very good, you know to have found him and um and i actually went to, went to the offices at ethiopian airlines and um i always think i missed out because my brothers and sisters 
they all got free airline tickets for the first 21 years of their lives. I've always wanted Ethiopian Airlines to say, yes, Lem, you deserve this. <laughs> backdated, backdated Absolutely. payments. Absolutely. Well, I, I know people in the airline. I'll give them a call. They, they know yeah, you, you as well. So. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. But they're so wonderful to me. Like, I stay at the Hilton in Addis because I love staying at the Hilton. And maybe that makes me, you know, it's one of your diaspora tickets, you know, stays at the Hilton. Um, but I like it. It's where my father uh, partied. And it's where my mother married her husband, um, who was the vice minister to finance under the emperor. Um, it's where they partied, actually. She married at the, the Coptic church there in Ethiopia. So where do we go after this in terms of travel? I mean, obviously, it's a big fast forward. Um, you travel all around the world in usual circumstances. Oh, my gosh. I've been to so many incredible places and stayed in so many beautiful, beautiful hotels. Um, uh, last year, I was in Bali, and I stayed at the, uh, I think it was called the Amani, Amandi, Amandi Hotels. And... The year before I'd stayed there and the guy in the other room was Nick Cave. So they weren't rooms, they were like dedicated apartments. And you looked out of, you would draw back the wooden um, sort of uh, uh, wooden shutters? shades, shutters. And you'd be looking directly into the side of a valley, a forest, basically. And at the back of the apartment, it was just, you would, you would bathe in a stone, beautiful marble, sunken bathtub underneath the stars. It was all laid out so that it was just, it was everything that you wanted, but it was underneath the stars. And it was just the most luxurious beautiful place hang on what's nick cave what's nick cave like on holiday because i used to um live in brighton and i'll be returning there very soon and nick cave was there i think he's actually left now but he had a um he was there a long long time probably still has a place there and he has a beach a beach hut on the front and so often you'd be walking down hove seafront and you'd see nick cave sitting outside his beach hut you know with his deck (laughs) chair (laughs) with his like sort of pointy black you know kind of yeah yeah resting up on another deck chair and you'd think this is so incongruous seeing like Nick yeah. Cave and also because he's so pale as well I mean what's he like on holiday did you, did you have a little chat with him well he he um I've been down to a studio in Brighton by the way in, in Hove I think it was yeah but he he um he's the same yeah the same the full black I have actually mental image of him stood outside of his apartment which was next to mine, but, but further and far enough away for it to be totally private. This, this was top end, looking out at the, at the valley, which you could basically almost touch. It was a big drop that was full of green that stretched up, you know, it's so lush. Um, yeah, and the contrast of this black, wily, sort of um, wiry figure with, yes, the pointy shoes and the looking out against this lush, verdant green uh, sort of burned into my memory. But he was quiet, he was with his partner, um, and so, yeah, having a private good time. He was the patron of the festival of the gig that I was doing out there. So there's there, there's, there's, oh gosh, Singapore performing 
in the Botanic Gardens on the stage, which is like an open oyster shell shape, and performing to the 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 audit the um what was it the, the man-made hills that served as an auditorium a you're natural thinking, auditorium you're thinking amphitheater aren't you that's the amphitheater, right. amphitheater thank amphitheater, you that's it, yeah. but, and in front of the stage before you got to the hill where people were the amphitheater sort of effect that people were sat on was a small sort of half lake with black swans on it while performing on stage over the lake, over the black swans to the audience who was sat on this sort of like amphitheater hill that was uh, crowned by trees. It was the perfect, you know, idyllic uh, thing. And then obviously Dubai is a very strange experience, but wonderful. Where have you felt most at peace? I think it's always Ethiopia for me, I, I think. Oh, well, strangely enough, Scotland, the Highlands, the Highlands, Loch Inver, uh, the sort of barren Highlands. They're not barren, but um, it's funny, isn't it? The place that people often think of as barren are often not so once you look under the surface. Um, but no, I, th I think Ethiopia, I feel very at home in. I love New York. I like uh, the people. I think the people, you know, when anybody says, uh, they're like, oh, I love there because of the food. Like I was in, where was I not so long ago? In Malaysia, in Penang. It's like, oh, they're like, the food's great. Whenever you say the food work great, whenever I say the food's great, I try, and, I try and add to it, it's the people that make the food. You know, the food is a reflection of the people. And it's really important to make that connection because otherwise we are sort of stealing. We say, oh, this, this food is good. It's like going to somebody's house, isn't it? And just saying, oh, yeah, the food's good. And eating it all and then walking out of the house. You know what I mean? You say, the, so it's always worth remembering. The food is good. The people, either the people are incredible or the people must be incredible to make food like this. That's a really lovely way of thinking of it. And I never, never thought of it like that. You have a very, I was going, this is very obvious, but you have a very poetic nature. You are a poet, but you do have a very poetic nature and a beautiful way of expressing things. And actually, I, I saw a quote from you that really resonated. And, you know, when we talk about, I've never made that connection before when we talk about the journey and top flight and navigating and sailing as well. We say the way forward, the way forward, all of these, um, all of these uh, travel, uh, what do we call them? Metaphors. Metaphors. Uh, it, it becomes a metaphor, you know, a symbol that the travel actually populates our language. Yes, I, you know, I've never made that connection and it took you as a poet to make that connection. But this quote that I, I thought, you, well, it's something that you said, you said, you know, you left care and that childhood so long ago, but you've actually said that you never leave it behind and part of you is always that rootless kid. Now, you seem a very happy rootless kid, but do you mm. think that rootlessness has almost given you wings, another travel metaphor? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I, something tells me I would have been this way. You know, I, I don't think that I, I am this way because of what happened to me. I think there's something about who I am that is just who I am. You know, um, 
yeah, I really do think that. And I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there is something, there's something also to be said for staying at home. You can have the greatest journeys in your own village, you know, and I, I think that we who travel a lot, we actually probably meet quite a lot of people who don't travel a lot. And actually, I hope that I see the value in those people who know their home, are happy with the world to be what it is, and stay put. And they read books, and they travel in much, you know, just as interesting, ways which are just as interesting as as the way of the traveller, you know. I think it's really important for us to see each other, you know, and that's what travelling is about. But it's also what being at home is about, you know. That's available to all people. Does that does that sort of make sense? I, I, I. But if there was one gift I could give to kids in care and inner city kids, I mean, I'm a country boy, but 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 I live in the city. It's travel. It's travel, um, and they say that uh, travel broadens the mind. But it's the new experience that broads the mind, I think, you know. Um, it's realising, oh, your way of thinking of the world is not the only way. <laughs> it's not that you're wrong, it's just it's not the only way, you know. Absolutely. So before I ask you my last question, is there anything you think I've missed? I mean, there's so many things, but anything here? Um, no, it's not gone the way I thought it would go, which is good. Um... I do like to talk about the philosophy of travel and what travel means. And it's not necessarily where I went on my holidays, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Uh, um, oh, there was something. Yeah, I, I think it was connected to the fact that we're all, we're all immigrants and we're all, all of us. I think that migration is part of what it is to be human. Traveling is part of what it is to be human, you know, the scientists will tell you that the first, the, the oldest human beings were in Ethiopia, um, discovered, I think, in the 1970s. Um, we've been traveling out from where we live ever since then. Our children migrate from adolescence to adults, from single to married, from house to house, you know, from village to city, from city back to village. These are all migrations, you know. We look at the television, we watch animals, and we think, oh, wow, look at them. The reason that we're doing that is because we're part of that process, you know. It, it, is, it is a celebration of what it is to be a human. You know, we don't ask our children to grow up and stay still. You know, unfortunately, we watch them grow wings and fly, you know. It's part of who we are. We, we hope they fly back every now and again, and they do. It's funny saying this at a time like this, isn't it? Where all of those things have been taken away from this, where the kids, when in some countries they've been locked in the house completely, when people aren't going to university and coming back or going to school and coming back, or even in some cases going to work and going back. But another thing that, that rang true is what you said about travel. When we travel, we're offering, often meeting people who aren't traveling at all. It's good for us because it asks for us, it asks humility you know, and understanding, yeah. My last question is always about music because I believe that music 
and travel very much go hand in hand. And if you had to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel, what is that song and why? The song that I would like to choose is uh, Cold by Annie Lennox. And I listen to that on my headphones, on the beach, in the Gambia, while, while looking at the Atlantic Ocean. Was that the first time you went to meet your mum? Yes, it was the first time I went to meet my mum. Yeah, it's all in the lyrics of that song. Run to me, come with me, do and be done with me. Cold, cold, cold. Yeah, the, 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 the words say it all. Thank you so much for that, Lem. And also, I love this job. I really do. How amazing to speak to such a fascinating man about his life and work. Next episode, we have the equally brilliant Lloyd Grossman, who I have to admit was much more than the light entertainment star I thought I knew.